Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg, that's me, ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Graduation is a sweet occasion, but finding the perfect gift can be a bitter struggle. MMS.com has a solution. Personalized M&Ms. Just imagine the look on your grad's face when they receive a custom candy creation featuring their school's colors, name, and even their photo printed right on some M&Ms. It's a thoughtful way to celebrate their accomplishments and make the occasion even more special. Visit MMS.com to create your own personalized gifts and party favors for graduations, weddings, birthdays, and more. That's MMS.com. Use code WONDERY to receive 15% off your next order. This is the Ion Travel Podcast with CBS News Travel Editor Peter Greenberg. Hi, everybody. Peter Greenberg here, and welcome to another edition of the Ion Travel Podcast. This week, we're coming from Louisiana. First, I'll chat with Patrick Smith, founder of Ask the Pilot, to talk about the biggest aviation successes of 2023 and the challenges to airlines and passengers for this year. Then, Gary Leff, who writes TheViewFromTheWing.com, that's required reading for travel nuts like me, with his projections of what this new year will bring. Good, bad, and ugly. And then, we dive into Louisiana itself with a visit to Baton Rouge and the National Championship LSU baseball team and a very special look at the Mississippi River and which way the river and a few other things flow. But first, Patrick Smith. Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Angie's list is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is. And it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. 
Mr. Smith, how are you, sir? I am well. Happy New Year to you, Peter, and to everybody, and thanks for having me back. You know, when we last talked, which was only last week, talking about wrapping up 2023, we we now get you know we have now have the opportunity to talk about 2024, and you know I, I take a look at so many different issues that are going in: FAA near misses, air traffic control fatigue, staffing issues, um, you know, airport capacity, all the things that were with us in 19. 19- 1927 are, are, are ratcheted up now for 2024. Uh, what's your take? First of all, you know, I, I had to laugh a little bit in, in a sort of ironic way that the FAA had to, had to convene a committee to talk about how they can reduce near misses. Um, it doesn't really take a committee to figure that out, does it? Yeah. I mean, this, this is an ongoing problem. Um, and it's something we need to look at going into 2024, um, making predictions for the year ahead. That's a little tricky, but I can tell you what I think the biggest challenge will be in the year ahead. And that is maintaining the same level of, uh, of safety that we've had uh, all along now. And because, um, and for all the reasons that you just ran through, um, understaffing all the logistical chaos that on to some degree is, is still with us. And, and I, it's interesting. And this is something I've brought up on the show before. When you go back through the crash archives, the air crash archives, you know, going back through the sixties, the seventies, the eighties, all the way into the two thousands, um, we would have major disasters involving our, biggest legacy carriers, uh, year in and year out, sometimes multiple crashes in a year. And starting in, well, just after 2001, we've run off a stretch of 22 straight years without a major legacy airline crash. Um, absolutely astonishing, uh, unprecedented, the longest such streak in the history of commercial aviation. It's hardly mentioned because we've come to take it for granted, but it's, it's just, it's been remarkable and quantifying, you know, how and, and why this has happened is hard, but an element of luck is certainly part of it. And I don't want to say our luck is going to run out and, and leave it on kind of a, such a negative cliffhanger like that. But it's naive to think we're never going to have a serious accident again. Of course, we are at some point. Yeah, but you I'm know, let me pre- let me let me just jump in there for a second because I totally agree with you, and it is true. It's a, it's an astonishing, remarkable, uh, impossible to duplicate twenty two years of of, uh, of safety, um, mm-hmm. and so we must celebrate that. We certainly acknowledge it. We can't improve on that. I don't think. And the real challenge, as you said is how do we maintain it? And it may not be with just air traffic control, and it may not just be with pilot staffing or, or air traffic control staffing. It may also happen to do with maintenance um, and where airlines decide to send their planes for maintenance, who's supervising the maintenance, where's the, where's the federal oversight, and where are the consequences if it falls apart? And that is something that I've been screaming about for a long period of time. You know, we, we went through the Boeing 737 MAX fiasco in which, you know, Congress finally discovered that, you know, manufacturers were being allowed to certify their own products as safe. Uh, that's no longer the case. Boeing can no longer say 
when we built the plane and we certified it as, as, as safe without somebody else certifying it of, of a third-party situation, otherwise known as the FAA. So we're sort of halfway home, but we still haven't addressed maintenance, have we? Uh, no, that that's an issue. Um, everything you just said is 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 uh, a problem and uh, a challenge and something the FAA needs to deal with. Now, if we do have a serious accident, whether it's in the next twelve months or at some point in the reasonably near future, I mean, it it may have nothing to do with that. Um, it, we just don't know. Um, and but but let me again, give you an, let me give you an example if I can. Under current FAA regulations. If an FAA inspector wants to inspect a maintenance facility outside the United States, and as you and I both know, Patrick, a lot of airlines are sending their, their airplanes outside the U.S. For, for routine and heavy maintenance. And by the way, these facilities, I'm sure, do a very good job. That's not the issue. The issue is who's inspecting it. And if an FAA inspector wants to go down and inspect the work, under FAA internal regulations, he has to have a reason to go first. Well, what's the reason to go? Does the health department have to have a reason to go to inspect a restaurant? I don't think so. So let's assume, though, for the sake of this discussion, he actually or she actually finds a reason to go. He still has to ask permission. And here comes the part that nobody can understand. Under FAA regulations, they then have to let that maintenance facility know with a seven-day notice that they're coming. Now, let's go back to the health department. Do you think if the health department gave the restaurant a seven-day notice they were going to check out the kitchen, the kitchen might be spotless when they get there? So, I mean, why is that Why is that allowed to happen? And by the way, I'm not saying these maintenance facilities do a bad job, but look at the way these things are structured. The possibility of it and not being able to be discovered seems to be pretty high. Yeah, I don't disagree with you at all. And uh, I also feel like you know more about this than I do, so I'm not sure what exactly i could say I could all right just for, just for saying that, that Patrick, just for saying new, peter <laughs> but uh, just for, have been, i was about to ahead. say just for saying that i know more than you do you're welcome on the show anytime <laughs> <laughs> i mean airlines have been outsourcing maintenance to other countries for a long time this isn't new uh i don't know if the rules have changed for better or worse um along along the lines of what you're saying but you know this this has been something that's been with us for a long time and airlines are certainly incentivized to make sure these facilities are doing a good job uh their insurance companies you know have a lot to say in that and um we haven't uh knock on wood had any serious crashes that could be tied to um, faulty or negligent maintenance performed outside the country, but that's not to say we shouldn't be on it, as as you're emphasizing. And by the way, speaking of anniversaries and you know long periods of safety, next week marks the 15th anniversary of the miracle on the Hudson. It was January of, of 2009 uh, that Captain Sullenberger made that incredible landing on a cold January day in the Hudson River, and everybody survived. Uh, I mean, just amazing. It's bother, by the way, it makes me feel very old that we're now celebrating the 15th <laughs> anniversary um, since I was there at that moment and, and remember it so clearly. But that also goes to show you, you know, it illustrates how few and far between incidents have been. That was an amazing incident, but it's one that also had a lot to do with luck. If, uh, if that bird strike and the uh, dual engine failure had occurred in a slightly different location or if it had been at night or if the weather hadn't been uh, 
ideal, uh, we would have had a completely different outcome and no skill on the part of the pilots was going to change that. So luck had a huge role. You know what? You're, you're absolutely right. You're, you're absolutely right. In fact, I went back and flew that simulator, uh, which we mirrored the actual flight path of that plane. And Patrick, you're absolutely right. If, if the birds had hit him about a minute earlier in his ascent, he never would have been able to clear the George Washington Bridge. If the right. birds had hit him a minute later, he never would have been able to turn around in time to land on the Hudson. And then on that particular day, if the incident had happened an hour earlier, the visibility on the Hudson was zero, zero. And an hour later, I was there. The river iced up. Uh, and, uh, talk, and he put it right in the middle of the river where there were no boats at that particular moment in the middle of the river. All that stuff, all combined, the gods were with everybody that day. Uh, amazing, right? There were a lot of variables in play, and uh, that that could have been a we could have had a very different outcome if just one of those things had been different. And uh, you know, to kind of wrap this up in whole, Peter, it, 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 it's sounding kind of negative here. Um, you know, I I don't want this to sound like me or you are, are predicting some terrible no. thing is going to happen in the year ahead. But this is a, a cautionary and a reminder that should something bad happen, uh, hopefully we won't overreact because you know, even if there is some kind of disaster in the months ahead, you know, I don't see a big statistical swing coming. I think we still are on the whole going to be maintaining this incredibly safe run. Patrick, one that will occasionally be marred by an incident. We've been speaking to Patrick Smith, one of our regulars on the show, the founder of AskThePilot.com, to take a look forward of what we can expect in the new year. I'm assuming, Patrick, that given the meltdowns of 2022 and some other big glitches in 2023, that the airlines are coming to their senses, at least in what they can control. They can't control the weather. But what they can control in terms of their scheduling, in terms of their backup systems, when their mainframe computer somehow falls apart, and also in terms of even gate space. I, I noticed at the end of, uh, of last year, which by the way was what, eight days ago, I noticed that American Airlines came up with a very interesting idea. And you know, it's one of those ideas when you hear about it, you go, why didn't they think of this sooner? And that is, you know, when you go to an airport, the guys who basically control the operations of each airline at the airport, uh, in many cases the airport itself, assigns gates to the planes for departure and arrival. But how many times have you landed? How many times have I landed? When, of course, the gate that we were assigned to wasn't available and hadn't been for quite some time. And all of a sudden, you're sitting out there burning fuel, misconnecting passengers and bags. And there may be seven other gates open. So what American Airlines just said they're going to do is they're not assigning any gates. And that when your plane comes in or the plane that I'm a passenger on comes in, within, you know, three minutes, the, the ground ops people for American are going to say, all right, Captain Smith, you're going to gate 47. And that's the first time you're going to hear which gate you're going to. And guess what? The gate's available, and in you go. And the people who are waiting to take off on gate 47, we all know that it takes, what, at least 35 to 50 minutes to turn a plane around. They'll just have to make their way over to gate 47. Makes sense, right? Yeah, it sounds like a good idea. It's an interesting idea. I don't know that it's one that can work for every airline at every airport. I think a lot of it is airport-specific just because of all the moving parts that are involved uh, between getting a plane in and getting a plane out. Um, everything from uh, you know, unloading and reloading the galleys to cargo to fuel to passengers. Um, it, it's hard to, to shift a lot of that at the last second. 
and that's one of the reasons why it, we have those gate holdouts, as we call them, um, that sometimes become lengthy. Other factors in there, too, um, you know, flight times are padded by the airlines. A lot of times a flight will arrive early. There's no gate. You're waiting out on the apron, and it feels like you're delayed, but actually you're still on time because you landed early. It's just that the uh, there's still a plane at the gate because that flight, which is also on time, hasn't pushed yet. Um, so there's a, a perception issue in here, too, at times. Although I'll give you another for instance. At almost every major airport that I know of, there are penalty boxes that are not attached to jetways, but that are that are behind other planes or between other planes where a plane can pull in and park safely and get people off. And I've always wondered, you know, why wouldn't they do that? Uh, because now you don't have misconnecting bags, you don't have misconnecting passengers, and fuel burn or crews that are timing out because they're waiting too long to get to a gate. That would seem to be another way to go. It would. Again, that is something that's airport-specific, though. Not every airport has that um, real estate that can be used for that purpose. And, um, you know, a lot of this is kind of thinking outside the box. I mean, it's easy for us to do, Peter, but airlines don't like to think outside boxes. I've noticed. In case you haven't noticed. <laughs> um, but, uh, and I sympathize. I mean, waiting for a gate to open for passengers is one of the most frustrating things. Um, uh Looking back at last year, I think one of the successes of the year is we didn't have any of the large-scale airline meltdowns that Correct. we've kind of become used to. And looking ahead to 2024, that's a trend that I'd like to see kept intact, and it makes me – I'm somewhat confident that airlines have uh, figured out a way to avoid the worst of those meltdowns like we used to see. I'm hoping that you're right. Um, and it, you know, I always say to people – you know, the, the original advice has always been what? Go get the earliest flight of the day out. Okay, that's it. that stands to reason. It's common sense. But I go one step further, and uh, you know, one of my continuing New Year's resolutions is don't just take the first flight out of the day. Take the first flight out of the day flown by an airline that's not based at your airport because there's a reasonably good chance that the plane that's taking you out came in the night before, and that crew is sticking with that flight because they're not based there either, and you have a reasonably good chance, barring any kind of a mechanical, to actually get out of the airport that day. That's true. Just hope that the inbound flight the night before wasn't late and that the crew is required now to have extra regulatory <laughs> rest, which could delay your departure after all. Did you have to uh, say these, that? Did you have to say that? These things are very that? hard to predict. <laughs> My thanks to Patrick. Not a week goes by without me reading viewfromthewing.com. It's really required reading if you want to know and stay on top of what the airlines are doing or not doing. Gary Luff is the author, and this week, for us at least, he's the prognosticator of all things air travel for 2024. Mr. Gary Luff, Happy New Year. Uh Happy New Year to you, Peter, and to uh, all the listeners as well. So let's talk about how we ended the year and then how we might be beginning it. We saw a year in which the airlines continued to devalue their frequent flyer points and their programs. Uh, we saw a year in which airfares were, uh, well, well, almost historic highs, uh, especially for overseas flights. Uh, we saw a year in which uh, we saw hotel rates that were also near historic highs. And if you just listen to the airlines and believe them, they will tell you that that's not that, that will also continue this year. 
I'm not so sure I believe that, but as we enter a new year, of course, I'm seeing lots of quick airfare sales out there uh, that have limited times and probably expire 36 hours after you see them, and the, and the fares are maybe only good till the end of, of April or early May. But there seems to be every indication that the demand curve, at least for the summer, is going to be just as strong. Yeah, you know, I think a lot of it obviously has to do with the economy, things outside the control of the airlines uh, and outside the control of any customers. If the economy is doing well, there's a lot of demand. What we seen over the last couple of years as airlines weren't bringing back their schedules as quickly uh, after the pandemic as people were demanding travel. And airlines had let go of staff. They had to rehire. There had to be training. They had retired aircraft. And so it just has taken time for supply to catch up. It's largely caught up. Uh, The question is, you know, what that demand looks like going forward. We're also going to see in the coming years just a lot of aircraft delivery. uh, And so we're going to see more supply and airlines are going to have to sell those seats. So I think even if we only see a little bit of moderation in the coming year, you know, I I don't think we're going to see things as high as we've seen them in, say, 2025 and six. Of course, the original projections that we heard as recently as two weeks ago was that or were that international airfares would go up about 10 percent year over year, 2024 versus 2023. But that domestic airfares could be down as much as 16 percent. Yeah, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a little bit skeptical that we see you know, such an increase internationally. And again, the domestic especially is going to be so much driven by you know the economy. I, I don't see the return of managed business travel much above the levels that it's been stuck at, you know, 20, 25 percent below 2019. And it would have grown from 2019. And so we're not back anywhere close to trends. So you know, those those fares were what always drove those uh, you know, highest pricing. And we're not seeing that. So yeah, domestic, uh, there's a lot of potential weakness there. But again, we're just going to have to see. I think a lot of folks have been very surprised by the resilience of the economy. You know, keep betting that it won't be sustained. And you know, maybe finally they'll be right. We'll have to find out. Well, shifting gears here to an area that I know you're very familiar with, uh, the U.S. Department of Transportation announcing that they're sort of starting an investigation into the airline frequent flyer programs. What does that mean? Yeah, so you know, it's, it, it's sort of funny because you know, airline frequent flyer programs is more or less due to consumers what they wish. Um, in fact, that they're not the only ones that think that. The position of the Supreme Court has been that a consumer can't sue their frequent flyer program for something like a common law duty of good faith and fair dealing. That was 2014's Northwest versus Ginsburg. Uh, and so the only avenue of redress under the Airline Deregulation Act is to complain to the Department of Transportation. But the DOT's own inspector general found and when it investigated that DOT has in the past improperly ignored consumer complaints about frequent flyer programs. So DOT has signaled that they want to look into changing that. Now, a a couple of caveats. One, it comes after complaints by a couple of senators who are just mad at the airlines. Uh, Dick Durbin has new legislation that he wants to uh, limit credit card interchange, which is what drives the lucrative credit card partnerships for the airlines, the profitability of their frequent flyer programs, and the airlines have complained. And so in revenge for that, you know, he wants DOT to investigate those programs. But of course, he also wants to make those programs less profitable and probably cause them to be devalued further. So you know, there's a little bit of, um, of, of, of motive questions in that. And, you know, we probably don't see anything out of DOT um, in the current, um, you know, Biden administration. So it's very much, I think, a question of what happens in the coming presidential election, whether DOT does anything. 
And, you know, there, I guess I would say that consumers have been largely ignored by DOT. Probably they shouldn't be. But at the same time, um, you know, I would tread a little bit lightly because I think there's still a lot of value in the programs that could be kind of mucked up with new rules. Well, I've got one for you. Based on, well, based on just my own intuition, I'll make you bet. You mentioned presidential election. How about this? How about I declare my candidacy for president? And I run on only okay. one. And I run on only one platform. That if you earn frequent flyer miles, you get to redeem them at a reasonable level. I think I'd win in a landslide. Peter, you'd have my vote. <laughs> I mean, seriously, because I mean, do you know how many individual frequent flyer accounts there are in the United States? Well, you know, each of the largest programs claims over a hundred million uh, members, um, though not necessarily active. Um, so. How much duplication between those? It's it's certainly the case that um, you know a majority of people in the United States have accounts attached to their names. They do. It's three hundred and fifty-four million. That's larger than, than than the population of the United States. And of course, we could then argue that a lot of people are members of more than one program. But the bottom line is, I, I could get a majority of those three hundred and fifty-four million votes just on that platform alone. I think. <laughs> <laughs> I think you should do it. Or how about this? Vote for me, fly free. No, okay. Um, <laughs> but, but at least, you know, what, what's happened at the end of 2023 and obviously is lapping over into this year is that the airline's management and rule changes of their frequent flyer programs have now gotten additional attention from regulators. They, they have. And I think that, there, that there'll be more attention from regulators um, going forward, not just through the frequent flyer programs, you know, um, an advisor to uh, Elizabeth Warren, who teaches law at Vanderbilt University, has a new uh, book arguing to uh, re-regulate the airlines. I, I don't think it's a good idea, but it's going to really jumpstart that conversation among you know certain segments of um, you know of the political classes, and we're going to you know see more discussion of that. And the airlines haven't really uh, gotten started pushing back on that yet. Do you see in the coming 12 months a continuing devaluation of, at least from a consumer perspective, of the value of their frequent flyer points? Well, you know, here's the interesting thing is um, one airline that really sticks out to me in a positive way is Alaska Airlines that has announced 2024 new award pricing that's pretty darn good. Um, they have announced changes to their elite status program that are pretty darn good. Um, and actually by removing the requirement that you actually have to have a minimum number of flights on Alaska Airlines to earn their status, um, they become pretty attractive to American Airlines customers because Alaska's elites are treated basically the same as Americans own, even when flying American. Um, and so the strength in Alaska uh, in some ways serves as a um, check on um, negative changes perhaps on the American side, a, su a suggestion that maybe American won't um, make too many negative changes, although I do probably see at some point uh, increases in the pricing of Americans' award tickets for era, their partner airlines. Uh, as far as Delta goes, I mean, the long-term trajectory is going to be down as it's been down. Um, they've told us that. They made a big announcements about changes they wanted to make next year that they rolled out, but rolled back, but only temporarily. They've told us it's only temporary, the changes to their elite status program and their miles have become worth less and less you know, consistently over the years. That's not going to uh, miraculously change. 
they have told us that their, their, their philosophy at Delta is ne- not necessarily to be the most rewarding in terms of their points. Um, so that's, you a, know, great, that's, a, great, that's a great philosophy. Yeah, I mean, their view is that they, you know, want people to pick them because of the total package of, you know, they 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 have a good brand and people like flying them maybe marginally more, and um, you know, they used to be much more reliable. They're still marginally more uh, reliable than many of their competitors, but not as much as not as big a difference as it so, used to be. So you know what, um, I'm going to make a suggestion that going into 2024, before your frequent flyer miles are the equivalent of Venezuelan currency. Think at least 330 days out and redeem them for whatever you can as fast as you can. How about that? I, look, I mean, I'm not, I, I would say <laughs> that your miles aren't going to be worth more tomorrow than they're worth today. I rest they're my certainly case. not a place. They're not a place to save for travel and retirement. Um, <laughs> you should be earning points. Um, and spending them roughly in the same period and then go earn more. Um, but then devaluation doesn't really affect you if you're you know, earning at the same time you know, and consistent with the same pricing that's charged at that time. So, you know, yeah, I think you should earn and burn. My thanks to Gary. Want some good news? Well, we traveled to Baton Rouge to talk to Jay Johnson. He's the coach of the National College Baseball Champions of LSU. It's a different kind of travel story. (sighs) The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Jay Johnson. Peter, how you doing? I'm doing okay. You had me batting a little batting practice today. How'd I do? I think defense is your strongest skill, but you gave it a great effort. So I caught the ball. Yes, you did, which is important. If they don't score, you're guaranteed to win. So you'll keep me on the team for just for that position alone. But the bottom line is, you know, when we talk about universities, and we talked about this the other day about the University of Wisconsin and Madison, where I went, it's not just a university, it's a destination. It's an experience. It's something you should visit because there's so many things to offer, even if you're not a student there. I mean, how many people does this stadium hold? 13,000. For a baseball stadium. And you fill it. Yes, sir. We have the best fans in the country, whether it's a Tuesday night in-state game against a mid-major or a key SEC weekend. uh, It's full, and our fans provide energy uh, that's unbelievable. It's a big lift to our team, and in my opinion, the best home field advantage in all of college baseball. Now, it's one thing to talk about the LSU Tiger football team. Uh, Recently, we we watched as they beat Army. um, This is a real score, 62 to nothing. So they're, they're, they're formidable. Uh, but people forget, you guys have fielded a, a lot of champions. 
Yes, I think that's an amazing thing about LSU is in this state, everybody supports LSU. I really believe the state of Louisiana is built around LSU. And so all of our programs get unrivaled support in college athletics. And uh, Skip Bertman, the legendary coach that came here and won five of the seven national championships, uh, really made this the premier program in all, all of college baseball. And it's an honor to be a part of that now and to be the coach and, and be a part of a powerhouse athletic program. Of course, there's a legacy associated with this university and your championships, and that's because so many of your players get drafted. Yes, and uh, very proud to say in 2023, we actually broke the SEC conference record with uh, 13 players drafted, and uh, we will be seeing several of them in the major leagues over the next few years. When people come to Baton Rouge, and you came from where? University of Arizona. So a big difference in culture, a big difference in climate, a big difference in everything. You went from the dry heat to humidity. I know that for a fact. What was the biggest surprise to you for, about Baton Rouge? You know, I think the, the fans and the support living up to the hype. You know, when you thought about LSU, you'd think about big crowds, uh, game day atmosphere, home field advantage, interest in the program. And I wasn't sure it could live up to the thought that I had in my mind. <laughs> it has more than exceeded that. Our, the people in the state are amazing, and how they get behind us is really special. Is baseball big in the state of Louisiana in terms of high school? Yes, there's terrific athletes in this state. I think it's a baseball state. I think it's a football state. I'm sure We know about Friday Night Lights. Yes, for sure. I think uh, what I've been most impressed with is the athleticism of the players close around our campus. And a lot of them are multiple sport athletes. And as they devote themselves to one sport or another, in our case, baseball, and develop a skill set on top of that athleticism, then you can create something that's pretty special. Now, did you ever play the game? Football? No, baseball. Oh, yes, absolutely. I, I played football, too. I was actually... Oh, excuse me. <laughs> Sorry. Um, uh, I, I, baseball is a middle infielder, shortstop, second baseman. Um, just one of those players that had to do all the little things to, to help my team win. And you, know, so you, were, you were the Pee Wee Reese of the game. Something like that, yes. Um, but that type or style of player, I really believe, has aided me in my, my coaching philosophy because coaching, you're trying to build your players towards winning baseball and, and all the things that encompass that. And, you know, as a player, having to be that type of team first, you know, type player, I believe has really helped shape me as a coach. Now, the cool thing about college sports is, as opposed to professional sports, is when you're doing a practice or you're doing a scrimmage, anybody can come out and watch. Yes, and uh, there will be a good four or 500 people you know, out here, sometimes 1,000, just to see what the Tigers are going to look like. And uh, it's really awesome. You know, it's, it's a one-of-a-type place or one-of-a-kind place in regards to that type of support. People want to know what we look like in the fall to anticipate what we're going to look like in the spring, and pretty awesome. And your season starts, what, January, February? We start uh, team practice in, in January, and then I believe first game is February 17th this year. And that'll go through? Hopefully the end of June, College World Series. Omaha, Nebraska. Omaha, best place in the world if you're a college baseball coach, for sure. My thanks to Coach Johnson. And what runs right through Baton Rouge? The Mississippi River. But how does it run? How does it turn? How does it spill on its way to the coast? Clint Wilson knows which way that river runs because he runs the LSU Center for River Studies. And there are some important lessons he wants to share. If you go about 100 and 
So on miles from New Orleans, about an hour and a half away, you'll find yourself in Baton Rouge. But if you really look hard, you're going to find a very special building on the campus of LSU. And it's the Institute for Marine and River Studies. And joining me now, Clint Wilson, who runs the joint. But this is unlike any institute I've ever seen with modeling about the Mississippi River I've never seen either. Clint, thanks so much for letting us come out to the Institute. You're welcome. I'm glad to have you and glad to talk about the work we're doing and share the excitement that we have and the passion for our coast. You know, it's it's more than excitement and passion for the coast. It's remembering the past. It's it's looking at history, going back to, I mean, the first time anybody kind of woke up about New Orleans and the Mississippi River, of course, was Katrina back in 2005. And uh, a lot has been done since then in terms of modeling, studying, and trying to avoid those problems. But it goes beyond that. It's about the actual flow of the river itself uh, all the way through the state. That's right, Peter. And, you know, what, what we have to remember is that the Mississippi River formed South Central, Southeast Louisiana coast. And until we levied it, until we built all that engineering infrastructure, the river was allowed to continue to nourish, maintain those wetlands and that coastal land. Once we built the levees, when we, we did it for economic reasons and to protect people from, from flooding. But once we did that, we disconnected those wetlands. And now we've seen significant land loss, up to 2,000 square miles over the last 80 years and probably another 2,000 square miles in the next 50. 2,000 square miles? Right. Yes, that's correct. About the size of maybe the state of Delaware. And it's still continuing. And that's right. So we're going to continue to see that land loss occurring over the next, well, in the, into the future. Well, you know, when we talk about global warming and climate change and now loss of land, loss, loss of coastline, the inevitable question is, is it inevitable? It's one thing to study it. Can you stop it? Well, we can't stop it. We don't have enough resources, whether that's money, whether that's sediment in the river, et cetera. We can't stop it. So what we have to do and what the state's Coastal Protection Restoration Authority has done is they've created a master plan where they have looked and said, what's a, real, what's a, a sustainable footprint that we can maintain the land, we can protect the communities and the industries from flooding? And once they've kind of defined that, within the constraints of the money that's available and the resources that are available, then I think we can do that. Of course, the Mississippi River has been used for navigation and for transporting goods since day one. You now have barges on the river. You've got some deep sea uh, vessels on the river. Depth is critical. So if you are building those levees, next thing you know, the sand is coming in. And if the sand comes in, you lose depth. If you lose depth, the river becomes not navigable. So what are you actually looking at? Yeah, so one of the things we're looking at is, is, is that sand that's depositing in the bottom of the river and impeding navigation. Now, the Corps of Engineers dredges, mechanically removes that sand and uses that to maybe shore up some of the, lower, the infrastructure along the river or for coastal restoration projects. But what the state's looking at doing is actually building river sediment diversions where they're going to divert some of that sand before it gets down to the lower part of the river. They're going to divert that out into the coastal, the wetlands that are adjacent to the river. Again, those areas that were built by that river water and sand originally. Now, at the Institute here, I know this is radio, but I'm going to try to paint the picture. You built this most amazing model that puts it all in perspective. Explain this model because it's, it's a wow. Well, th this model is a, a, a representation of the actual Mississippi River at a much smaller scale. But what we can do is we can reproduce the flows. We can reproduce the Mississippi River water levels. And we can reproduce the way sand moves down the Mississippi River. And we can do that in a time scale of one year of real Mississippi River time to one hour on our model time. And so we can reproduce, we can look at 5, 10, 15, 20, 50 years 
of flows and sand transport, and we can see how sea level rise is going to change the availability of sand, how diversions are going to change that, how future flows coming down are going to change the way the river behaves, the availability of that sand, and ultimately provide that information. We provide that information to the engineers and the scientists who are thinking about how are we going to design and operate these structures in the future. How about the naval architects who have to build the ships that have to navigate the river? That's right, and so that's an incredibly important part of this, right? Is you know, it, while I talk about diverting the water and the sand, what we have to remember is we cannot impede navigation and we can't increase the flood risk to communities and industries along the river. So it's really kind of a th three-pronged problem that we're working on. And the same thing happens with, with the concept of depth. If you don't maintain a certain depth of the river, it doesn't matter. That's right, because agricultural community, the petrochemical industry relies upon the river being at least 50 feet deep from the Gulf of Mexico all the way up to Baton Rouge. And if it's not 50 feet deep, that means they can't put as much, many goods or chemicals or products on these vessels. And that means either more costly or it's going to take longer to get things out. You know, I'm one of those guys who always gets angry when you ask kids where food comes from and they tell you the store. You take a look at your modeling here in Baton Rouge and you see exactly where it comes from. That's right. And I think you know, the, this lower river isn't just important to the state of Louisiana. It's really important to a lot of the country as well as around the world. The cool thing is, being LSU, you're a nonprofit and it's open to the public. It is, that's right. It's open to the public. So the first Sunday of every month, we're open in the afternoons. People can come and visit, see the projector system, learn more about the work we're doing. Um, and then also, they can contact rivermodel at la.gov to schedule a tour. And you should, because one, until you see this, this is not just a university campus project. It's a destination. You need to come out and visit it to understand cause and effect, because if you don't, you'll be a victim of it. Clint, thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate that. And give me the website again. Website is www.coastal.la.gov river. My thanks to Dr. Wilson, to Patrick Smith, Gary Leff, and Coach Jay Johnson. And my thanks to you for listening to this Ion Travel podcast. For more conversations with the world's leaders in travel, as well as answers to your travel questions, be sure to rate and review this podcast wherever you happen to listen to podcasts. And for all the breaking travel news, just log on to petergreenberg.com. The Ion Travel Podcast is produced by Amanda Morris and Anthony Protis Chung. For more content from Peter Greenberg and the Ion Travel team, visit petergreenberg.com. Ion Travel is a production of CBS News Radio. If you like Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg, you can listen early and ad free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com/survey. Get one of the most successful broadcasts in television history on your schedule with the 60 Minutes Podcast. Hard-hitting investigative reports, news, and culture maker interviews, and in-depth profiles are waiting for you in every episode. Listen to 60 Minutes ad-free on Wondery Plus. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. 
Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app.